Well, good morning, Restore. If you haven't met me before, my name is Justin. I am one of the pastors here, uh, and we are a new church that came to North Houston. We'll be celebrating our two-year anniversary sometime this fall. Um, but as we get ready to kick off this fall, we're going to be exploring what is my favorite book of the Bible, which for those of you guys who have been around for the last two years means uh, that might be really long sermons for the next six weeks. I promise, like I'm working on shortening my sermons, uh, but I am very, very excited about where we're going to be this morning. Uh, so I think, sorry, and I'm buzzing here. Better? There we go. Uh, so Galatians is one of those books. It was one of Paul's earlier letters that he wrote to one of his churches. Uh, and it's one of those books that I want to argue this morning, we sometimes think we are hearing what we're hearing, but it's actually not what Paul or what Jesus is communicating at all. The gospel of Galatians, or the book of Galatians is one of those books where Paul is going to radically and emphatically and entirely explain grace to the Galatians. He's going to get them to understand the gospel of Jesus. Why I love the book of Galatians is because I think the book of Galatians collides with our hearts in most of the ways that we struggle to understand grace. And so as we read this morning, Paul's basic position is everything you thought you knew about grace is not actually what is grace. Everything you thought you knew about how God loves you is actually different than the way that you think God loves you. And part of how you experience that grace, like live that grace, have trust in that grace, like how your life deeply transforms because of that grace and that love is very, very different than the way that you think it is, than the way that you suppose that it works. And so what Paul will do this morning, as we read in this letter, the first thing he's going to do is say, listen, you think you've bought into the gospel, but it's not actually a gospel at all. And he says, for you to really grab hold of the gospel of Jesus, this deeply transformative movement of God to transform you, to create in you uh, like his character, who he is, his glory to reflect who he is, is deeply transformative and it's not at all what you think it is. And so as we wrestle with this this morning, as we wrestle with Galatians over the next couple of weeks, I want to start by positing, that, by, by suggesting this, that much of what we think we understand about grace about God's love, about his compassion and his mercy and his goodness towards us, often is very different. And many times where our temptation as people is to short-sight it, to minimize it, to reduce it, to struggle to really trust it. These are all things that we'll see over the next six weeks the Galatians struggled with. I think they struggled to understand the radical, unconditional, all-consuming love of God. And their default is quickly to head back into different places, which as we'll see throughout the letter, Paul will point out to them, it's causing anxiety in you. It's causing spiritual depression in you. Like it's causing you to be divisive towards one another. Like the gospel that you keep trying to buy into isn't the one that God is freely offering you. And so this morning, uh, I wanted, we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff over the next six weeks uh, that I think like we're going to explore words that we've probably heard this before. Uh, so this morning in particular, we're going to explore the word sin. 
uh, which Paul says, hey, look, he has come to rescue you from your sins, call you out of this present age. And oftentimes, even when we hear that word sin, we think we know what that means. Like, oh, that's when I do a bad thing. Like when I, I didn't have the, like I was too tired or I was too grumpy or I just didn't have like the moral discipline to avoid this certain behavior. So I, I indulged myself, like I couldn't help it. Like I was weak, I was tired, I was sleepy, whatever. Like was, this was my behavior. That's often what we think of sin. We think of it in this kind of moral choice that we make. But Paul has a much bigger picture of that that we're going to explore this morning. And then we're going to take a look at um, how do we actually know Jesus? How do we actually know the gospel? And what I want to suggest for us this morning, what Paul is suggesting for us, is that it has to be radically different than we suppose it is. And unless we allow Jesus to come and to rescue us and teach us and transform our hearts, we will continuously cling to other gospels. We will continuously downplay grace. We'll continuously move away from it without even realizing that's what we're doing. So Paul starts his letter by saying, Grace and peace to you from God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of God, our God and Father. Okay, so, so I'm going to stop right there. When Paul says he has come to rescue us from our sins, Paul here is talking about sins with a capital S. We're not going to go into all of, all of the, the Greek here um, because I know you guys really just want to eat tacos. That's why we're all here. But the, the, what Paul is doing is when he says he has come to rescue us from our sins, he's using a capital S here, and he's using a plural so what he's not saying is God came to rescue you from your bad behavior. Okay, so first challenge right here. God did not, God has not come to rescue you from your badness. Right, from all the times that you do something and then you violate your own conscience. Paul will talk about personal responsibility when it comes to sin and our choices. Like he doesn't absolve us from personal responsibility. But Paul is suggesting here that we are being rescued from something far deeper than just our, like, our sometimes naughty behaviors. We are being rescued from something that Paul is suggesting is far more sinister and has a hold of the human heart. Now, the reason I want to suggest this and point this out this morning is many of us, our relationship is, with Jesus is centered around our personal guilt. Many, most of the time, many of us carry enormous amounts of guilt when it pertains to our relationship with God. I'm not reading my Bible enough. I'm not praying enough. I did that thing I said I'd never do again. I'm not being honest with what's going on. Like most of our spiritual relationship exists around some of the personal guilt uh, and burdens that we carry. I think this is actually about a huge portion of even just pastoral conversations I have with people. It's, I'm feeling guilty because I hadn't read my Bible enough this week. I'm not praying enough. I'm doing that thing again that I keep struggling not to do. Like, I'm still struggling with this. And so what, what's happening pastorally there, if I could walk us through that for just a second, is that we're struggling with this sense that God has come to make us from bad people to good people. Okay, tracking, the God has come and said, look, ah, this person's being naughty too much. Like, I got to step in and do something. Like, they're cussing way too much. I got to step in and I got to do something. Okay, God wants you to, like, use good language, especially in front of your kids. 
uh, like, I said something the other day. My daughter's like, what does that mean? I was like, it's nothing. It's just sometimes daddy when he's driving. And anyway, like, um, I'm not going to tell you all what it is. If you really want to know, you can ask me later. Um, right? So, so uh, the, the point is, like, God didn't look down. And he's like, well, I got like, to, like, step in with all this anger you have while driving. Let me die on the cross for this. Paul's view of sin is something that actually controls and oppresses the human heart. It's not something so much that individual decisions, like we have a fork in the road, and we're like, well, I could be bad or I could be good right here. Now, again, I want to I emphasize that Paul does say in different parts of his letters, like there is personal responsibility. We all have choices to make to act respectfully, to treat people with compassion, right? There's, there's real choices that we make. But Paul's primary concern was sin. Here in Galatians, and then in other portions of his letters all throughout his New Testament, is he sees sin as this thing that oppressively controls humanity. That at its core has reached in and grabbed the human heart and seduced it and now controls it. He sees sin as something that oppresses humanity. Something that takes human nature and, twarp, and warps it and twists it and creates in it something that it isn't. Why I want to really uh, hit this point hard this morning is for many of us, our guilt uh, and our, our personal guilt over who we are and our shortcomings and our flaws dictate and influence and emphasize almost all of our relationship with God. Like it's almost the entire thing that many of us get preoccupied with. All of my shortcomings, all the ways I disappoint God, all the ways I disappoint other people, all the limitations I have as a person. These become the preoccupation for many of us who wrestle with guilt and shame. And Paul's point is, when he gave himself up for our sins, isn't so much, you guys were being really, really bad, and God's like, I've got to somehow make you better. Is that he looked at humanity and said, they're held in bondage by something that controls them, that oppresses them, that leads them into decisions that are hurtful for them and hurtful for others, and this is what we have to rescue them from. So Paul is using the word plural sins here, not to emphasize personal guilt, but rather to emphasize that all of humanity is held in bondage by something that creates it and makes it into what it's not. What Paul wants the Galatians to do is actually find some freedom from some of that personal struggle. And I know some of this is like, I know we're wrestling with some of this. Like, give us, give me six weeks to kind of, Paul, just like I hopefully will be able to do, copying Paul, we'll, we'll, he'll make an argument. He's building, this is just the intro to his letter that we're in right now. But the thing that he really wants the Galatians to understand is that their personal decisions, even their personal shortcomings, have nothing to do with the way that God has related to them. They have nothing to do with the way that God has rescued them. They have nothing to do with the grace that God is giving to them. And this is absolutely fundamental for us as Christians to understand and see what Paul is saying here. That Jesus looks down on our helplessness and rescues us out over something that already has control over us. 
why this is so fundamentally important and why Paul's going to push this with his letter to the Galatians, as we'll see later, is that it, without this view in mind, we very quickly become self-appointed gatekeepers of grace. Okay, so, so if we begin to see ourselves not as rescued for something that oppressed us and controls us and has root over us, if we begin to see the reason that we follow Jesus as like, I'm just more moral than everybody else, or maybe I'm more spiritually minded than everybody else, or like maybe I have these values that others don't have, and like I saw Jesus and I connected with that. Like I connected, like there was something about the goodness of Jesus that I matched with the goodness of my own heart, and I was like, hey, we kind of, we fit with each other. This is good. What can happen is that we end up becoming self-appointed gatekeepers and we can begin to see the reason that you and I are here and a part of the church as something that had to do with our own moral upstandingness. I think what we've actually done there is we've just traded Jesus for Caesar. And what I mean by that is we've looked at Jesus like we look at our political leaders, right? You are, and there's a bunch of diversity here at Restore. Like, I want to acknowledge that if you're new with us this morning. Like, we have people that have voted for all different kinds of candidates, different kinds of the spectrums. But what happens is when you align yourself with a political party, what you do is you kind of look at that party and say, this party is most similar to my values, right? They're most similar to the things that I believe, Right? My insights, my sense of morality, like my convictions, this party seems to, as best as I can at least, and no party ever does this perfectly, but it lines up with who I am and my values as a person. And so then we elect our leaders this way. But what Paul's going to point out in this letter is there's no part of you that was able to look at Jesus and go, oh, yeah, we love each other similar. We love people the way, I love people similarly the way that Jesus does. Like, let's... Let's get together. Like I had, I had similar values as Jesus had. That's why I became a Christian. I had a similar outlook on life the way that Jesus had an outlook on life. That's why I'm here. That's why I follow Jesus. You see, what happens when we do that is we inevitably become uh, factitious. We become divisive. And Paul's going to point out later in his letters to the Galatians, this is exactly what begins to happen is that groups of people will begin to feel like they have a better access to God based on their religious behaviors. We're not going to read it this morning. We will in the following weeks. Based on their religious observances, based on some of the religiosity that they've kind of brought into their relationship with Jesus, what they then start doing is being able to look at the other groups of people and go, well, you're not quite as devoted as we are. You're not quite as committed as we are. You're not quite as close to God as we are. This, I believe, is at the heart of, of division within the church, but it's also the heart of true Christian humility. So over the next six weeks as we walk through Galatians, I'm also going to be walking us through like who we are as a church, what do we value, and one of our values as a church is humility. And what we say by humility is we confess our desperate and utter need for Jesus who rescued us from our sin, our shame, our guilt, and our fear, and restores us to who we truly are. This is the essence of humility. 
You see, if I can look out at you guys and stand here and preach and know that like why I'm here is no different than the reason that you were here and that both of us were here out of nothing other than utter, total, dependent need and helplessness to be rescued, it's very, very difficult for me to then like position myself in a position of superiority over you. But I think that this not only frees us from unnecessary division, it also liberates our own hearts because what happens is those of you who are struggling, which is everybody in this room, can stop feeling like a second-class citizen because you're struggling still. You can stop feeling like second-class Christian because like, you don't have a handle on your sin the way that somebody else does. Because the whole reason they were rescued wasn't because they had a handle on their sin. It was because God rescued them out of their like, need to be freed from sin, need to be freed from their own selfishness, need to be freed from their own self-preservation. It's a subtle difference, but it does two things. One, it restores us to real community with one another, real, actual, humble community. It keeps any single one of us from ever feeling superior to the other. But two, it also frees us from some of this extensive individual guilt that dictates so much of our spiritual life. Now again, don't hear me say what I'm not saying. Paul and other portions of his letter will talk about, hey, you've all got individual sins that like, let's wrestle with and like, find healing from, like, find wholeness from. But as a whole, like, y'all's problem wasn't that like, there was a group of you that just couldn't... like. You just kept sinning more in this kind of way, and this other group didn't. And God's like, well, I gotta stop them from that. It's that the whole group of you were held in bondage by this sin, and God has rescued you from this present evil age. Now, we may not quite grab a hold of what Paul has just said there, but what Paul is implying is this present evil age, which comes up in Romans, it comes up in Corinthians, once in Ephesians, and then a bunch here in Galatians where Paul is implying that this present evil age has dominion over humanity. And God in his mercy and in his love and in his grace, his all-consuming radical grace for you and love for you is like invading and pulling you out. Because he's pulling you out, you are rescued just like every other person in the church. So if you're rescued, it's like the ship goes down and there's a rescue boat and it's starting to throw life rafts. The people that have already gotten a life raft and are on the deck, don't start looking down at the people still drowning and go, well, I was a stronger swimmer than I, you were. No, you weren't. You were just thrown the life raft. Paul wants to point this out for them because he knows that part of the division that's beginning to take place in the Galatia church, which we'll read about over the next couple of weeks, has started to take hold, and it has started to take hold because people begin to um, emphasize and over-exaggerate the personal guilt aspect of the relationship with Christ. And saying you're not devoted enough because you're not observing these religious holidays. You're starting to eat these types of food again. Like we don't, we abstain from all those types of food. We abstain from alcohol. We abstain from these festivals. We abstain from these parts of culture. You don't. And what happens is they come in and they start wrecking the Galatia church over this. 
So Paul wants to try to course correct for them. And as he course corrects for them, the first thing he does is, you were all rescued from your sins. These sins, capital S, control all of humanity. None of you have been abstained from that. None of you had moral discipline to overcome that. You were thrown a life raft. So then Paul wants to emphasize again, and I'm going to say some things that challenge us. And if you have questions, like, please send me a text. Rest like, I happily spend time with you this week. We'll wrestle with some of this. Like, there's, there's a lot here that Paul's going to challenge about how we think grace, the gospel, and Jesus work. But the next thing he's going to do uh, is he's going to emphasize that everything I know about Jesus came directly from him. He wants to emphasize there is a real lack, even in my own life, a real lack of my own discipline, a real lack of my own personal integrity, a real lack of my own wisdom or spiritual insight that has made me into who I am. It's because Jesus rescues me. And he's going to say it uh, in a way that we may not quite see, but um, let me read it again for us real quick. He says, moving on to verse 10, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Okay, so um, at Restore, I never want us to be translation snobs. I think all of our translations are beautiful parts of your gospel. Whatever translation you use, I never want... Like, in our small groups, never go to somebody and be like, well, I use NIV. What are you? you? Like, that's never what I want us to do. But I am going to use a personal translation that was written by a theologian here um, to rephrase a little bit of what we read in the, the NIV, just so that we can really see a little bit of what Paul's trying to get across. And he says this, what I have from Jesus is not what human beings normally have in mind when they speak of good news. For I did not receive it from another human being, nor was I taught it. It came to me by God's apocalyptic revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so your NIV and most of your translations cut the, the when Paul uses a word, he actually uses a word called apocalypto, it's a verb. He's saying there's this apocalyptic revelation that I got from God that has turned me, that has made me a Christian now. So some of our translations uh, kind of move away from that because when we think of apocalypse, we think of like revelation and end times and like antichrist and stars falling from the sky. But that's not at all what Paul meant when he used the word apocalypse. When Paul uses that word apocalypse, when he says Jesus, God's apocalyptic revelation of Jesus Christ to me, what he is saying is there was this movement of God to which prior to I was completely oblivious to, had no idea about, like I didn't know who God was, I didn't understand him, even though I considered myself rel religious, faithfully religious, it was God in his mercy who moved in this apocalyptic revelation, this hand of God who revealed Jesus to me. And so Paul's going to emphasize what we spent the first part of the sermon unpacking was there was this part of me that was rescued. It was this apocalyptic movement of God. This point at which Jesus rescued me and revealed himself to me. And so when Paul says, hey, listen, we're being rescued out of this present evil age, 
by this apocalyptic revelation of Jesus that is not of human origin. It doesn't quite work the way that we think it does. It doesn't um, come to us by human cleverness. It comes to us solely and purely by the mercy and goodness of God. And it's begun to transform me. This is what I cling to. And what Paul's using with all of this apocalyptic language, he's trying to get them to see how helplessly and utterly and completely dependent on Jesus they are. But that also, as they are being rescued out of this present evil age, he's using literature that a lot of uh, teachers and rabbis and his generation were using. He's implying something. He's implying that, yes, you were being pulled out, but this present evil age and many of these powers still have dominion. And so what he's trying to get them to do is see that God's mercy and rescue of them isn't to pull them out of the world. Rather, it's to begin to transform their hearts within the present evil age that they live because the present evil age is now also being invaded by God's love and God's mercy. And so what Paul is hopeful that they'll see is that, yes, they are being rescued, but also, yes, they are still being rescued and they're coming alongside the evil that still has dominion over humanity, which means they're going to wrestle with it in their own hearts. It's not that they're now so superior that they can't once again be subjected to it, that it can't seep its way in. That's why Paul has all of this talk about you deserting and heading towards a different gospel. Like you, you bought Garace for a while, but now you're wanting to move away from it again. Because that part of our heart that is still controlled by sin, like it keeps trying to cling to and walk its way back into submission, dominion of sin. So what Paul's wanting to do here is help them to see the bifocal nature of what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is that you are now, as you're being pulled out and saved by grace, the other parts of the fallen world become more present to you. They become more of a reality to you. And so one of the things I want to do this morning is reframe some of the guilt that we, we struggle with. One, by saying so much of the personal guilt that we struggle with was never God's primary concern. Like you, making, you going from being a bad person to a good person wasn't why he loved you. So then when you are a bad person, you're not failing God's primary purpose for your life. His whole purpose was to rescue you and make you alive in him, as we'll see over the next six weeks. But the second thing I want to do just pastorally here uh, is walk us through so much of the, the, our struggles spiritually. Like a, one of the biggest things I often feel is like, I feel really distant from God. Or I'm stressed at work and I'm not able to spend as much time in scripture or my devotions as I'd like to be. Or my kids are like really demanding and I'm like I constantly feel like there's this distance between me and God. And I think when we experience and feel that, we are experienced, that experience is normal. And I think we as Christians want to feel like because I've been saved by Jesus, like now I'm, I'm never subjected to my old ways again. I'm never subjected to this fallen like nature again. 
But the reality is, is you're being rescued out of this present evil age, but you're not fully rescued just yet. Jesus is working in your heart. And so what can happen for some of us is that we get bogged down by this distance that sometimes we feel and begin to, again, feel like we're doing something wrong spiritually. Right? In seasons of spiritual dryness, we begin to assume like we've done something wrong. I'm not being as committed to God as I could be because I feel distance from God. And that must mean I'm not doing what I should be doing or he's disappointed in me. Like it's got to be one of those two reasons I feel distance. And just pastorally, what I want to do here this morning is help some of us, like relieve some of us from that burden of always feeling like I'm experiencing distance right now, I must have done something wrong, or God must be dissatisfied in me. He must be angry with me. He must, like, if I'm feeling distance, it must be because he's given, like, he's pulled distance from me, from something I've done or who I am. Or, and I think what we're doing there is we're actually really struggling with um, understanding realistically our hope. This is why I'm always a little weary of some of our modern worship songs that sort of promise that like when God comes, depression goes away and marriages get healed and addictions go away. And I think that's true, but I think it needs to be much more nuanced than that. We kind of have this expectation that as soon as I've, I, I've been saved by Jesus, all of it goes away. And the distance that I'm feeling from God, all of that goes away. And if I start to feel some distance again, or I start to struggle again, I start to feel like I'm doing something wrong here. But just pastorally, I want to help actually lift a little bit of that burden from us. I want to help lift a little bit of some of the unnecessary guilt uh, that we like add to our shoulders. And that yes, you are being rescued out. But when Paul uses language like this present evil age, what he's also uh, offering to the Galatians is, hey, be realistic about what you're being pulled, like called out of and where you are. And as you wrestle with this, as you wrestle with growing in affection for Jesus, and as you wrestle with like receiving his grace, know that there's going to be a struggle there and that you haven't done something wrong necessarily just because there's a struggle. The church exists in this struggle. Like, that's what the church's purpose is for, is to exist in this space where Jesus, in his love for us, has invaded and has begun to rescue and pull us out. But if we're not careful, what will begin to happen is we'll begin to, like, add all of this extra spiritual weight onto our shoulders, assuming that those times of distance that I have or because I've done something wrong, or because of the ways that I'm still struggling, it's because I just have poor moral character, and I'm kind of a second class. Like, I'm just a screw-up, and I'll never get it right. Why should I bother going to church? It's not like I belong there anyway. And so we end up in this kind of over, this space where we over, overly condemn ourselves. And part of what we'll see through this letter to the Galatians in the coming weeks is part of Paul's intention and his hope for them is to begin to release them from some of the unnecessary spiritual burdens that they carry. And the first one that he hits very hard at the beginning of this letter 
is that one of the biggest burdens you carry is that you're still assuming that you did something to get into God's good grace, that you did something for him to show his love towards you and rescue you. Because you still assume that like you have some kind of influence over the way that God loves you or whether or not he loves you, or whether or not he gets close to you, because you still assume that you control some of that, it's creating this massive spiritual burden for you. As he'll point out in his letter um, over the next couple of weeks here. Uh, so I, I know we hit uh, a, a whole lot here this morning, um, and I know some of this is going to challenge us. I want I want to be like really be mindful of that and pastorally. Like if you have questions, like send me a text. We'll go grab coffee. Um, I'll do my best to wrestle with this with you. Um, but as we close this morning, I really want to want to leave us with the question that I want to ask is: um, Are there ways in my life that I'm struggling with guilt? struggling with the distance that I feel from God or struggling to feel like I'm a second-class Christian because I haven't quite grasped the radical nature of Jesus' grace. And if, if, I'm, if I'm struggling and there are times where I feel like a bad person, do I feel like I'm failing God's primary purpose for my life? I'm choosing my words carefully here, but his primary purpose was never to make you a good person. Primary purpose was to rescue you and make you alive in Christ. So while our own morality and our own spiritual disciplines and our own individual contributions to this, sometimes they, they can persuade us and sway us into thinking that we have more control over God's love for us than we do, that we can influence in, in some kind of way. We can either influence it by being really good or doing what he wants seeking his approval. Paul says it was none of these. You were drowning and you, threw, you were throwing a rescue hat. Which means that you can stop trying to convince yourself that you're a strong swimmer. You don't need to convince anybody. You're on the deck now. You've been pulled out. Later he'll point out you can stop trying to be superior to the other people that are still in the water because you weren't a stronger swimmer than them. You were just rescued. You sent your life raft. Lastly, my hope this morning and over this next week is we just think spiritually, are there ways that I feel like a constant disappointment to God, that I feel the weight of um, feeling like a disappointment to him? And is it really because I'm truly a disappointment to him, or is it still that I even think that I could be a disappointment to him? Have I really accepted the radical, inclusive nature of his gospel? He says, it's nothing that you've done. It's my love for you. Never influenced, it never influenced why I rescued you, and it doesn't influence why I continue to rescue you now. It's radical. It's counterintuitive, which is why the Galatians are struggling with it. But it's what Paul wants them to see. Let me pray for us as we take communion and close today. Father, would you have um, mercy on us? Would you rescue us? We need your rescue. Uh, Father, each of us here are controlled and enslaved by our own passions and lusts and sins and fears and insecurities. Um, and they're so hard on us, Jesus. They weigh heavily on our hearts. 
They create burdens, they isolate us, they make us fearful. They push us away from one another. We feel disconnected from ourselves. Some of us constantly carry a sense that we're a disappointment to you. But none of that was ever why you loved us. You loved us because we needed you to. That was it. You continue to love us because we continue to need you to. That's it. Not by how many times we go to church or how much we pray or read our Bibles or how much we sin or don't sin. You're working those things out in our life to make us whole and healthy. But they were never the reason you loved us. Never the reason that you continue to love us, to rescue us. Do so you help us to trust that? Would you give us real humility, Jesus, to be able to look at everyone else in this room and realize that there was nothing on their own merit that got them here, that we didn't get here on our own merit. But them, just like us, were desperate. We're held in bondage. They're things that control the human heart and turn us into things that we don't want to be. They make us selfish when we don't want to be. They make us self-preserving, manipulative and fearful, resentful, vengeful, violent, unfaithful. These things have seduced us and persuaded our hearts and now they've become cruel captors over who we are. So could you help us, Jesus, free us, would you rescue us? We need that, we can't do any of this without you. Would you show us how to love one another? We need help with that too. We pray all these things in your name, amen.